What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, flamethrowers. Lindsay Gibbs here. Um, This week, we want to dedicate our show in honor of two very special people. One, the honorary Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who uh, died of pancreatic cancer this past week. And also friend of the show, Darlene Elizabeth Wright, a fierce advocate against gun violence, who passed away in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia on September 7th. May they both rest in power. Welcome to Burn It All Down. Lindsay here. I am joined today by the whole crew, Brenda, Amira, Shireen, and Jessica. On this week's show, we're going to be talking about the impact of climate change on sports. So we've got NFL, MLB, MLS, and NWSL spending a huge amount of time monitoring air quality. And then, of course, we're going to burn what's been... uh, terrible this week in sports highlight some of the torchbearers who are giving us hope during this dark time and talk about what's good in our lives my good thing this week is a show on apple tv plus which is not actually a sentence (laughs) i thought i would ever say a reminder we are now coming to you twice a week tuesday with our news-based episode like this one and then thursdays will be a standalone interviews and they will drop like i just said on thursdays This week's interview will be Allison Desir and Lauren Fleshman chatting with Amira about organizing the Women Run the Vote Relay amid, well, all of this, COVID and the protest and climate change. To get us started, (laughs) the WNBA playoffs are underway, and I don't know who saw, hopefully everyone, in the first round, the Phoenix Mercury defeated the Washington Mystics with a Shea Petty game-winning three-pointer. Shea Petty buries a three against the team that cut her. And it got me wondering for my co-host, you have one sentence, no context, but what is your favorite equivalent walk-off shot, walk-off homer, walk-off, whatever it may be, moment of a playoff victory in sports? Shireen? Canadian hockey legend Marie-Philippe Poulain scores an OT after coming back from a 2-0 deficit against the United States at the 2014 Sochi Olympics to cinch the gold medal. Oh, I remember that one. (laughs) Chess? Yeah, I went obvious. Enrique Ugumboale, when she was with Notre Dame back in 2018, she hit back-to-back buzzer beaters. The first one was against UConn in the semifinals. And then that amazing fallaway three in the corner against Mississippi State to clinch it for the Irish. I love it still. Chills. For me, it is a throwback. Back in 2004 in the NFL playoffs, Jake DeLome to Steve Smith double overtime for the Carolina Panthers <laughs> to send the Panthers to the conference uh, finals. It was the first play in second overtime and it took down the greatest show on turf at the time, the St. Louis Rams. Amira. 
Yeah, Salta Lamakia's walk-off single game to the ALCS, October 13th, 2013, en route to the Red Sox championship that year. But it really was about context. Don't hate me. I'm a historian. This is still one sentence. Lots of commas, though. It was Poppy's grand slam to tie it in the eighth inning after being down 5-1. On the heels of the Patriots coming from behind to score a touchdown with four seconds remaining to beat the Saints that same day. It was a night of comeback. It was the good old days. I get hyped just thinking about it. Punto. Um, in case you were wondering, listeners, you did not just have your podcast on double speed. <laughs> that was all Amira. <laughs> your podcast settings did not change. Bren. Watch an historian do this in one sentence, colon. Beautiful and superhuman chase down black by LeBron James in 2016 finals when he was still a Cav. I love it. All right, right now fires are raging on the west coast of the United States. Uh, This past week, we've seen these fires really alter the sports world through cancellations and postponements. This is nothing new. Climate change's impact on the sports world is everywhere. Today, we're going to take some time to talk about that impact on a global scale and a local scale and look at what the future might bring. Shireen, can you take us through what's been happening this week in particular? Yes, thanks. We know that the wildfires are raging through California, Oregon, and Washington State. And one of the things that we know is that this particular catastrophe environmentally will affect major league sports and pro sports. For example, a lot of the leagues have what could be considered an AQI policy, which is an air quality index policy, but they're still pretty behind. For example, they have some have postponed their training, some have postponed their practices, but 49ers coach Kyle Shanahan said that it was like an apocalyptic state, but the air quality doesn't seem as bad as it looks. And I mean, the thing is, we have to look at this and how it'll affect the athletes and the teams and the trainers. So we've got NFL, MLB, MLS, and NWSL spending a huge amount of time monitoring air quality. The Portland Thorns season opener was postponed against OL Rain, and that's been rescheduled to September 30th. But according to Professor Maddie Orr, who's a professor at SUNY Cortland and coordinator of the Sports Ecology Group, and I'm quoting from an ESPN article, she says, I can unequivocally say there will be more fires moving forward. And American pro sports leagues are really far behind, frankly, when it comes to policy change on these issues. So although there may be some movement, there is still much more to do. Uh, for example, Caitlin Best, sports writer, women's soccer, got some info from a league spokesperson. And an AQI of 200 is an automatic cancellation for the NWSL. And just for those that don't understand, zero to 500 is how they measure air quality. Mostly it's been under the 200s, but 150 to 200 is unhealthy and above 300 is hazardous. So these are some serious numbers we're dealing with. Uh, Jess, I know this has also impacted a sport that is very close to your family's Mm. heart. Yeah, so a lot of my friends on the West Coast, one thing that I saw when they were posting alongside their pictures of the orange and gray skies that they were experiencing was how they couldn't, they were noting that they couldn't go outside and so they couldn't exercise at all. And I was thinking about the ways in which climate change is affecting one of the most basic sports, which is running, right? You put on your shoes, you go outside and you, and you run. And that that world in particular has been dealing with ever-increasing issues around climate change. And I've talked about this before. I think the most obvious example is marathon running because it has such a formal structure to it. And I, of course, I keep up with it because I live with a marathon runner 
who tells me all the time about the weather when I don't care about it. Um, but I've talked about this on here before. So the marathon for Tokyo 2020, which maybe will happen next summer, but in the prep for this summer, they moved it to the north of the country and they were going to potentially start it in the middle of the night to avoid athletes having heat stroke because the temperatures are so high now, as so many actually did when they did the IAAF World Athletics Championship in Doha last year. Maybe you'll remember all the pictures of the women marathoners just all over the something like 40% of them didn't finish the race. So I kept thinking about that this week as I heard from more and more friends that couldn't even go for walks, forget trying to run. Of course, there's one country that's specifically known for its distant running prowess that has been incredibly, incredibly impacted by all this. Amira, do you want to talk about Kenya? Yeah, I do. Climate change is impacting the region there in many ways, but one of which to keep an eye on is the Great Rift Valley in Kenya, which has been experiencing intense flooding. It has already caused evacuations and displacements. And one of the continuing concerns there is that the water level in two of their main links, Lake Baringo and Lake Boriaga, are rising and they could merge. Just to give you context, the lakes used to be 12 miles apart. Now they were just eight miles apart. And one is the Alkine Link and one is fresh water. So the cross-contamination could be disastrous for wildlife. To learn more about this, I reached out to my colleague, Dr. Michelle Sykes, who studies distance running in Kenya. And here's part of what she had to say. Right now, Kenya is experiencing a number of environmental challenges, from flooding to the worst invasion of locusts that the country has seen in a generation. These crises are worrying and may affect the sports world because people in communities in Kenya's Rift Valley, where almost all of the nation's distance runners live and train, heavily rely on farming and natural resource-based livelihoods generally. Increasing severity of climate change has obvious negative effects on farming, which mean that people will not be able to focus as much on sport when food supply and alternative livelihood prospects are under threat. Since most runners in the region are aspiring athletes whose pursuit of success on the track and the roads depend directly or indirectly on farming, and they cannot solely rely on running to make ends meet, the destabilizing effect of climate change and its accompanying impact on the sport of distance running itself may be great. Bren? Yeah, staying on Kenya for a minute, I mean, one of the things that has also caused more pressure in Kenya is the number of refugees that have come from Sudan in particular, but other places. It's pretty troubling how the environmental crises are contributing to an increased refugee population. So we know that refugees are at an all-time high, about 80 million people. That's double since 1990, probably half of which or more are children. That's such a good point. I'm always amazed when I really start to think about it, about just how many different types of impacts climate change is having. Of course, you have the rising sea levels, which, you know, here in the United States, um, there's a lot of talk about how this is impacting the stadiums in Miami and New York and Jacksonville and Oakland. These mega million dollar stadiums are being built knowing that these seas, if, if climate change continues, they're going to be wiped out. Um, You've also, of course, got snow sports and winter sports industries that are obviously incredibly impacted. We have droughts that are making it very expensive to maintain the grass fields that are needed. And of course, I'm always just think about Jordan McNair dying of heat stroke, the um, Maryland football player last May, and um, how we're just going to keep seeing more of that if policies don't start to change to really impact climate change. 
Um, and of course, this is all just in the United States. Brenda, the disruption is worldwide. Yeah, actually, the United Nations has called on sports bodies to sign different types of accords that they will try to be carbon free by 2050. I think that is basically a joke to most of them, but it's pretty scary. BBC came out with a report recently on the impact of flooding on English football, where they expected about a quarter of the fields to experience flooding this season and ongoing. Then there's weather disasters like the typhoon in Japan, which we remember impacted rugby union worlds last year. And then Indian cricket officials who have long given up on air quality are now saying the problem is the temperatures and most of the venues can hit 104 so it's pretty frightening. The United Nations is targeting sports as one of the areas that could contribute to forming some policies that others could model. Yeah, unfortunately, it seems that these organizations are all more interested in offsetting their own carbon footprint than in really making changes that will uh, help the world. And it's infuriating, like when you read about how much more money and resources they're put in just to justify spending and building these ridiculous stadiums, which of course getting into the economics of the stadium building and the displacement and the gentrification. That's a whole other topic. But let's just look at this at the Viking Stadium, Minnesota Viking Stadium. The stadium offsets all its energy with renewable energy credits, and it has committed to being a zero-waste facility, which is all great stuff. Similarly, uh, UEFA was trying to, when we were supposed to have the European Championships this summer, were trying to offset their carbon footprint. But once again, they were doing all this while holding an event that would have added extensive air travel to the world. So we're not going backwards any. We're just trying to make these mega million dollar events have less of an impact. I was noting that Stephen Ross, the Miami Dolphins owner, has talked a lot about their stadium and building this Dolphins stadium so that it can withstand any of the sea changes and hurricanes and all of this stuff. He's talked about how crucial it is for sports to get involved in stopping climate change. And yet he hosted a fundraiser for Trump and donated to Trump's inauguration. <laughs> and you just can't have both. And it just really makes me wonder. We've been having all of these protests. We're trying to get these owners to really buy into ending systemic racism and using the power that they have. And it's like, what if they also use this power to really focus on changing the environment, on voting in politicians, on supporting politicians who believe in climate change, on holding their fellow billionaires accountable for the policies of their organizations? You can see by all they do for like their one stadium to make it more eco-friendly that they do have the resources when they care about it. But when it's not about their bottom line, they suddenly will vote for their tax break. Bren? I just want to, and I know this is an obvious point, but I just think it should be in here somewhere. Historically, we know that this problem has been caused by the global north, and it goes back to industrialization. Still, even the largest carbon emissions are coming from China, the United States, India, and Russia, with Russia being only about half of the United States as a sort of distant fourth. And then to have them not take as much responsibility as the place is impacted, much less the amount of responsibility they actually have. 
it's just so frustrating. Chile has had a you know hole in the ozone layer since like 1970. And in certain parts, you've had to wear this extreme sunblock. I mean, it just feels like the places that are emitting are the places, well, at least in the United States and the Northeast, the places that haven't been as impacted. And to continue to see the global North do this kind of shit is just feels so unfair. Amira? Yeah, I think it's important to talk about how these quote unquote natural disasters and and climate change are compounded, exasperated by environmental racism. Too often, the lack of protection, infrastructure or relief exasperates the harm. It disproportionately affects under-resourced minority populations from Katrina to Flint to Maria. And just a few weeks ago, when Laura blew through Lake Charles in the Gulf Coast, if you're not familiar with it, I was born in Beaumont, Texas, about an hour west of Lake Charles. And the Gulf Coast stretches Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas. And it's not only weathered many storms, but they're the site of so many harmful oil refineries. It's often jokingly called the Cancer Coast because of the high number of cancers, asthma, and other medical cases due to toxins in the air. In Texas, they have six of the most toxic oil refineries that emit benzene, which is a component of crude oil, gasoline, cigarette smoke. It's invisible. It's deadly. It elevates cancer rates, respiratory disease, and developmental delays in infants. When Hurricane Harvey hit two years ago, those refineries leaked around 28,000 pounds of benzene gas into the air. And that's probably a low estimate because guess what? The oil industry gets to self-report on these things. And yet these same spaces, these Gulf Coast communities have vibrant youth sports cultures, particularly football. And it is Texas (laughs) and Mississippi. This is the backdrop that they play against. And even now, In Lake Charles, with the pandemic on the rise, schools are literally missing roofs and bleachers. Gyms have been blown apart because of the storm. And yet at least one school official this past week said, if anything, the storm and the pandemic means they should fight harder to play this fall because it is hopeful. It's reminiscent of that Olympic official who was like, the flames of the Olympic torch is going to starve out the virus. Like hope is not actually a balm for these toxins. It, It doesn't work like that. And here's the thing, the kids who do have talent, who do make it out, like sports is often too often seen as the only way out of a lot of these neighborhoods and areas. So families do send their kids into the fray with that hope. And they also hope like just hold your breath a little bit more. Like we know that This is the environment we're playing on, but this is the way out. And here's the thing, for those kids who do make it out, who have that talent, who make it from Flint, we see that they become some of the biggest donators back into the areas. From Clarissa Shields passing out water in Flint to Puerto Rican athletes who raise enormous funds in the wake of Maria, they end up doing the work of the failed state. So when we're talking about climate change and we're talking about a pandemic that is a respiratory illness, and we know it's a global problem, and and Brenda just so eloquently implicated rightfully the global north within this problem but right here in our backyard we are having long-standing effects of the damage already being done and kids are playing games amongst this backdrop and it's heartbreaking all right before we get to the burn pile i want to give a quick preview of this thursday's interview with allison desir and lauren fleshman amira what can listeners look forward to Check out this interview for a really interesting conversation about how this relay idea evolved over the last four years, including last minute changes because of COVID and now the wildfires on the West Coast. This is 2020 and there's no time when we all are going to feel great, have no issues related to social justice or weather. So we decided to proceed. The spirit of it has been to 
make our movement count for something important. Well, now I am good and burn pile ready. I hope you all are too. Um, it's everyone's favorite segment. We're going to take the garbage and we're going to put it on our metaphorical burn pile. Shereen, do you want to get us started? So I'm never at a loss with how this continues to happen. And what I'm going to do is just quickly tell you about the discrimination that was really, really thrown at Naja Akil, a young 14-year-old black Muslim volleyball player. She was disqualified during an away game in Nashville, Tennessee. She plays for Valor Academy. And basically, the referee decided that her hijab, although it wasn't covering her neck, was just turban style low in the back, was against the rules of the TSSAA, which adheres to the high, National High School's Athletics Association rules. So she cried, she was humiliated, she was taken off the court. And what ended up happening was it, it grew really quickly. I mean, the story was written really quickly by Rueda Abdelaziz of Huffington Post. I'm quoted in the article, but just spoke about how much this affected Naja. And the bottom line here is this continues this type of discriminatory policy when we know for a fact that there's not enough proof or there's no proof that a hijab actually impacts dangerously a player, an athlete, or their opponents. There's no reason to have this rule here. I understand safety-wise jewelry and whatnot, you can get injured, but in this case, there is not. And the school came out into her defense, but the National Federation is not saying anything, the association, and the TSSAA, the Tennessee Sports Senior Athletic Association, is not making any comment. They're saying, well, we defer to the higher up. So it's basically people who don't know anything about this are making the decisions for it. These rules are archaic, they're unnecessary, and they prevent young Muslim women from engaging in sport. I want to burn this kind of policy and discrimination and racism down. Burn. 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 Friend? On Sunday, September 12th, Brazilian football player Neymar was given a red card during the PSG Marseille match because of a scuffle with player Alberto Gonzalez. At one point, Neymar heard Gonzalez call him a racial slur. He reported this to the official, but was ejected anyhow, without a VAR or match stoppage against the rules. So, number one, fuck that. Then in reaction to that, the president of the French Football Federation, Noel Legrat, he's been on this pile before, responded by claiming that there really isn't any racism in France or football, basically the most untrue statement this geezer could come up with. This isn't the first situation like this this season, even. And he had been the person last summer that said there were too many stoppages because of racism. So fuck that, too. Also, they remain the only federation, the French one, to ban the hijab for playing, coaching, or officiating. So fuck that, too. Then the media gets in there and writes about it in the most frustrating way, pointing out that Neymar is an expensive player, he's overrated, and he dives just to diminish this entire thing. On top of it, the announcers talk over Neymar, explaining the racial abuse on the pitch, claiming that Neymar called Gonzalez a homophobic slur. And I'm not saying that that's not possible, but Gonzalez evidently didn't hear that, and neither did I. But if they'd shut up and take this seriously, we might have heard. So I want to burn all of this as just garbage. Yeah, I just want to burn the racism in, in French football, how this president gets away with it without being sanctioned. 
I think in French it's incendié. Burn. So this week, the Matildas unveiled their new national team away kit for the women's soccer team in Australia, of course, where they're holding the next Women's World Cup. And people on Twitter loved it and said, well, wait, where can I buy this in women's sizes? Can I buy this in women's sizes? This women's team kit in women's sizes. And they said on Twitter, unfortunately, the new national team's away kit will not be available in women's sizes. We apologize for any inconvenience caused and can assure supporters that this will be rectified for the next kit release due in 2022. (laughs) How does this keep happening? How do people in charge keep forgetting that women buy merchandise? Women buy merchandise up for men's sports and especially for women's sports. And also, why in the world do we have to wait till 2022 to get this fixed? I don't think there's a freeze on manufacturing for the next two years. This seems like something that could be fixed pretty immediately. Seems like Nike and Australia as a whole have the resources to do so. So look, I just want to throw this on the burn pile and everyone who has ever ignored women when making sporting gear. Burn. 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 Jess? Yeah, so a warning that I'm going to be discussing sexual abuse of minors. I'm going to tell you a story now, and it's going to sound sadly familiar. Earlier this year, Sada Abitol, a 10-time French national champion pairs figure skater, wrote in her memoir that as a teenager, she was sexually abused by her then-coach, Zeal Bayer, who was also a former French figure skating champion and national team official. As these things go, in the wake of this news, other French figure skaters came forward to report abuse by their coaches. Abitol said that when she first attempted to report Bayer's abuse to the French sports ministry in 2008, 2008, they did not listen nor care, and so Bayer continued coaching young skaters. He has now been accused by at least four women. And it turns out he had been investigated for abusing minors in the past, and it had no impact on his ability to coach. Didier Galliguet, the president of the French Federation of Ice Sports, was forced to resign after all of this came to light. And he had one of those all-time sorry-not-sorry statements, quote, I committed errors, but not wrongdoing. In August, the French sports ministry announced that their investigation following Abitol's report found 12 coaches who'd been accused of harassment or sexual assault, including three who were convicted on related charges, seven reported cases of physical or verbal violence, and two cases related to trainers who died before the end of judicial proceedings. The ministry said, quote, The volume of cases identified is indicative of practices and behaviors that have been replicated through generations of coaches. It is unparalleled internationally. Last week, the AFP reported that the Paris Prosecutor's Office has now opened its second investigation into all of this, the first being against Bayer. We know little about the second case, except it involves a person who has authority over a minor in the world of figure skating. It's obvious why this deserves the burn pile. It's yet another example of systemic sexual abuse about which no one cared enough to do a damn thing. I'm not sure what else to say about it, but I want to acknowledge that this happened and that it's fucked up. And I'm so sad right now in so many ways because too many with power in sport put a culture of winning and success above the safety, health, and well-being of young athletes. So, burn. Amira? Yeah, I don't really even know where to start with the Big Ten. Like, do I burn the whiplash I have from having a vote 
11 to 3 in favor of not playing to all of a sudden now 14 unanimous votes for playing when very little has changed. So let me correct that. It's actually gotten worse. Do I burn the politicians, namely the occupant of the White House, using this for political points and saying, I brought the Big Ten back and other local politicians seeing this as a great political opportunity instead of working for a safe community? Do I burn the fact that the Big Ten has some of the fastest growing sites of COVID in the country? Here in State College, we're now number two. Yay! Michigan State University just put 30 large residence halls on quarantine for the next two weeks. But for fuck's sake, let's bring football back. Which brings me to the other flammable things here. Football is not the only fall sport. And even though publicly it's been said that there's some conversations in the works around volleyball and soccer, there have been very little details and officials in the schools don't even know if their teams are playing no direction. It's a very clear caste system. All of this is a very clear indication of things we already know that we've burned before, that it's about money, that is in the pursuit of money, kids are being put at risk. Not to mention that there's medical questions abound. And yet, because they've built their entire business structure, right, because they need that cut of the $2.6 billion revenue just from media rights to Fox Sports alone, Because really at the core, they are football colleges who happen to have like university happenings around them and not the other way around. And because of this, they have set up a whole infrastructure of rapid testing and their testing protocol is better than some professional leagues. But what message does it send if football players can get rapid test results that day when their counterparts on campus are still waiting days to find out if they're positive or negative. In many ways, it's just really showing what we've already said, which is don't pretend this is a farce about student athletes. Don't say that this is about learning and they happen to play sports when it's very clear what the priorities are. And that's not even getting to the very burnable ripple effects. Like, let me just zoom in on State College here to tell you what it looks like on the ground. This is a small town like so many of these Big Ten schools, small college towns that are dependent on athletic money, but also on the university, which is why they brought students back, despite the fact that they knew it was going to have a rise in cases. We averaged 19 cases a week all summer. Now, since the students have been back, we average over 500 cases a week. So do I burn the fact that it's all but killed public education in these places? My kids had school for four days, four days before it shut down. Do I burn the fact that the Big Ten decision have influenced youth sports here? Last week, a local wrestling tournament, citing Penn State being open, staged a tournament with 1,200 participants and another 1,500 spectators from around the country. Despite that, it violated all of the supposed safety protocols and ordinances in place. And that's just it. That those are just on paper, but we've already seen and watched people defy them. Football coming back is going to bring with it gatherings and tailgates and all of the football Saturday shenanigans. To watch players be exploited and sacrificed in the pursuit of the money that they are going to raise for everybody else but themselves. There's almost too much to burn here. Guess I'll just have to burn it all down. Burn. Burn. Burn.
All right. After all that, it is time to have some hope. So this is our Torchbearer of the Week segment. Shireen, who's giving us Kernel of Hope for the week? I am so happy to say congratulations to football specialist Lipa Nissa, who was actually voted the ones to watch by the Asian sports list. Awesome. Uh, Jess, who's our MVP of the week? (laughs) It is none other than Asia Wilson of the Las Vegas Aces, who was named the WNBA's MVP. Crystal Dangerfield of the Minnesota Lynx took home Rookie of the Year. And the Lynx's Cheryl Reeve was awarded Coach of the Year. Congratulations all around. Awesome. For our Barrier Breaker of the Week, we have Madison Hammond, who signed with the OL Reign and will be the first Native American woman to play in the NWSL. And Brenda, what about our whistleblower of the week? <laughs> I love what you did there. I just figured it out. Tori Penso will be the first woman center referee of an MLS match on September 23rd, the DCU versus Nashville game. The last time that happened was Sandy Hunt in May of 2000. Awesome. And can I get a drum roll, please? <laughs> Our Firemaster and Torchbearer of the Week is none other than Amira. Yeah, Maria Taylor. This week, Doug Gottlieb came for Maria Taylor after it was revealed that the sportscaster left Anthony Davis off her all-NBA ballot, something that Taylor has said was a quote-unquote clear mistake. Gottlieb, though, asked why Taylor even had a vote in the first place. And here's the thing. It's not about the vote or the ballot. It's about the fact that when a man makes a shitty ballot, it's not a reflection of all men in every sport ever. (laughs) Nor do they have their very right to be in the room or in the space question. But when a woman, let alone a black woman, uh, does something like this, it's like run her entire resume. Like, bring her to the gatekeepers. Maria defended herself by saying, reminding people that she both played basketball and covers the league, and she said, quote, I deserve everything I have. Well, we stand with her. The simultaneous erasure and devaluation and questioning of black women in sports from Crystal Dunn's FIFA ratings to comments at the U.S. Open that didn't read Serena Williams as a leader in women's tennis to the crusty folks coming for Maria now, it's exhausting. So for standing up and defending the space that she fought so hard to occupy and pay Paving the path that she continues to pave for others coming up behind her. Maria Taylor, you are our torchbearer of the week. Light them up, sis. Woo! All right, let's finish with some good stuff for our lives. I, <laughs> the only thing good in my life this entire week, besides my co-host, was Robbie Anderson having no clue who Sir Purr was. <laughs> That's Sir Purr, bro. Who? Sir Purr. How you say that? Sir Purr. Sir Purr. Oh, Sir Purr? Wow. You call him that? Yeah, that's his name. So you be like, what's up, Sir Purr? This is the one thing that's made me want to watch football in a long time and made me proud to be a Carolina Panthers fan. Jess? Yeah, my good thing this week is a show on Apple TV+, Plus, which is not actually a sentence (laughs) I thought I would ever say. Uh, it's called Ted Lasso, and the basis of it is that a D2 football, American football coach, is hired by a Premier League team to be the manager. He has no experience in soccer, and there's a whole reason for it. It, it holds together enough for it to work, but it's just a very sweet, funny show, and I just feel very good and happy when I watch it, which is not a feeling that I have a lot, so I highly recommend Ted Lasso. Awesome. Brent? 
On Netflix, there's a documentary called My Teacher, the Octopus. The octopus is really the star of the show, and <laughs> she's amazing. And even if the guy doing it is annoying as fuck and has too much money, you know, to even look at half the time, it is so sweet, and the photography is just gorgeous. And also my kids, even though they're remote learning, thinking about something other than makeup tutorials for the first time since um, June is definitely making me feel happy that there's something going on upstairs. I love that. <laughs> Shireen. I uh, just want to say Shana Tova, Happy New Year to all my yes. Abrahamic cousins out there. Love that challah bread. I can eat all of it. I did yesterday. Just want to say I'm reading all the time and like academic reading, which is kicking my ass. I just wanted to tell everybody who may not know, I'm part of a new CBC podcast called Pop Chat. And other than Alamine Abdul Mahmoud, who I love, who keeps sending me half naked pictures of Mo Salah, it's going really well, which is not always a bad thing. Also wanted to say happy birthday to my brother <laughs> Suleiman, whose birthday was Monday. He is older and not wiser, but I love him. And check it out because I did roast him on Twitter. I love it. Amira, bring us home. Yeah. So Brenda's little brother, Ryan Steele, this week had the best TikTok where he was using this sound. I'm a potato. <laughs> I watched this 15 times. I'm not lying. He was supreme acting, serving all of the potato realness. Um, it was the best thing. Uh, I also am reading Rise of Kiyoshi, which is a prequel Avatar young adult series. There's two books. It's so fun. If anybody is into Avatar, you know that Kiyoshi is literally that bitch. And so watching her origin story has been, the I mean, not watching it, reading it, um, has been great. And there's so much wonderful world building in it that I'm just all about it. And last but not least, I have to send a hearty congratulations to my good friends, Alana, uh, who we had on the Black Women Speak Out special episode talking about wellness, and her husband, Marcelie Jean-Pierre, who's my husband's frat brother and our good friends from college they welcome their baby girl or side this weekend and it is their first baby and everybody is healthy and doing well and thriving and it was great to have a little bit of light and a new virgo bringing all the kind of virgo-ness that we need to organize our lives and get everything together to welcome her to the world so congrats maris and alana we love you very much and baby girl too that's amazing. And of course, we want to tell you all what we're going to be watching this week. The WNBA semifinals, Las Vegas Aces versus the Connecticut Sun and the Seattle Storm versus the Minnesota Lynx. Also have, of course, the Barclays FAWSL going on. We have the NWSL Fall Series, the NBA Conference Finals. And we have Team Biad, which is participating in the Women Run the Vote this week. The event supports Black Women Vote. So you can cheer us on this week. We'll have info on our social media about how to do this. That's all for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. We want to encourage everyone, especially this week, to burn very carefully, but to continue burning on and not out. This episode was produced by our favorite Martin Kessler. And we, of course, have our graphics and website and social media guru, Shelby Weldon, in the team as well. You can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, anywhere where you get podcasts. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. 
and on Twitter at BurnItDownPod. You can check out our website, BurnItAllDownPod.com, where we have all of our archives and transcripts and show notes. And with our merch, you can use the code FALLFLAMES for 15% off. And from now until the end of the month, if you join our Patreon or upgrade your Patreon, you will get a special design sticker, which we have made just for you to show our love and appreciation. Also new on our Patreon is our fireside chats for our top tier subscribers. Just like FDR warmed our hearts in the depression. <laughs> Amira wrote that in the I script. did it. I did I it. Did right it. it. No, that, that was, was me. Brenda. That was totally Oh me. my God. Yeah. Okay. okay. Wrong historian. <laughs> I knew it was one of the historians. Okay. <laughs> I blanked out and missed that last week, even though I was here. <laughs> Just like FDR warmed our hearts in the depression. You can join your co-host too. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our patrons for our support. You <laughs>